Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode is recorded on Friday, May 28th, or Friday, May 18th, 2018, starting at 2 o'clock p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 158th episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Austin Kopic and Kelly Surtees about the astrological forecast for June of 2018. Uh, hey, guys, welcome back to the show. Hey, Chris. Hello. Hey. So we had a little uh, technical snafus today, getting getting started and getting our mics together. But I think we've 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 all got it together at this point, and we are ready to do the forecast. What do you What do you think? Oh, I'm ready. More than ready. Okay. So, and. <laughs> We're actually recording this on like the 18th, which is super early for us. Usually we record more towards the end of the month, but we're all getting ready to go out of town here in the next uh, few days for the United Astrology Conference, which is taking place between, uh, I guess the opening is technically next Thursday, May 24th, 2018. And then the closing is what, like Tuesday, the 29th or something like that. Is that about right? Something like that. Something like that. Okay. <laughs> so we're actually recording this. I'm probably not going to release it until the end of the month. So most of the events associated with UAC will already have taken place by then. Uh, but we'll go ahead and just pretend that for the purposes of this, it was a great conference. And we uh, we are now recording the, the forecast in the aftermath, in the warm afterglow of having had a great conference experience. That's great. We can just channel post-conference vibes. Okay. Um, let, let's not channel the exhaustion. No, we don't want that yet. <laughs> right. Uh, as well as the uh, you know good feelings of the amazing podcast event that the three of us are about to have on Saturday, uh, or did have on Saturday, May 26th, from 7 o'clock to 8.30 p.m. Uh, in the Halstead foyer on the fourth floor of the hotel, where we had a gathering of three to 400 people, and we led... <laughs> Like a, a rousing discussion about the future of astrology. All right, it was so, a, it was a fine time. It was a a fine good, time. I will, I will forever remember the uh, Holstead foyer um, fondly on the on the fourth floor. Okay, on the fourth floor. <laughs> all right, let's get into. Let's just like jump right into it this week since we've all got stuff to do as we're getting ready to go out of town. So first, um, news and announcements. You guys have any news and announcements? Yeah. Um, so in June. I will be teaching a four-week class uh, that I've titled uh, The Proper Care and Feeding of a Birth Chart. And the focus is on remediation and management uh, of your natal chart. You know, you've got your chart and then there's, you know, what do you do with that, right? Um, and so it's, you know, maximizing strengths um, and remediating difficulties and then just, you know, just general chart management and care. I'm also doing, so that's a four week, uh, class. And then I'm also going to be giving a webinar on the upcoming Mars retrograde. Awesome. And both of you actually last month gave your webinars on Uranus and Taurus, right? Yeah, I did it, uh, two days ago. Wow. <laughs> Cool. I'm actually doing mine in June. So Oh, yours uh, is still coming yeah, up. Yeah. Okay. It's actually basically it would have been a good time slot to do a Mars retrograde webinar because it's on Saturday, June 23. Um, but I will be do looking at Uranus transits for the new Uranus in Taurus cycle. 
That's really interesting. I um, would, I once you do that, I'd love to compare notes. Um, I scheduled mine for the oh, day yes. after the ingress because I wanted to get that that ingress okay. energy. And uh, yep. as those who've attended my classes know, I often run over in time, but I think I set a new record for myself. It was supposed to be a two hour talk, <gasps> and I went How for long? three. And, I went for three and a half. <laughs> Uh, oh my goodness! Because I you wanted go through all twelve signs. Yeah, well, I wanted to do history and then personal transit stuff. So I did a bunch of history. Um, I actually didn't get done with the history until about an hour fifty in, <laughs> and then I did uh, in every house and um, aspecting every planet. And so <laughs> it took a while. Wow. Good times. All right. And uh, so, and people can find the recording for that on your website, which is austincopic.com, right? Yep. 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 Okay. And Kelly, uh, yours is kellysastrology.com. You've got that Uranus in Taurus webinar coming up. Do you have anything else coming up? That's the big event for June. I think I'll just be in recovery mode. It's one of the first months this year where I will be at home, just seeing clients, getting ready. I've got a big four-week class coming up in July that I'll be teaching online. So June is, I've been saying forever, it's been such a hectic start to the year and it's slowly dawning on me that that may be true, but the year is now almost half over. So it's not just the start to the year, it's just been a hectic year so far. And I'm kind of, not that I want to necessarily welcome negative things with Mars going retrograde, but, you know, just a chance to pause for a moment um, in June. But yeah, so I just have the Uranus and Taurus webinar for that month for people who are interested. And I'll cover some of the topics um, Austin did. The challenge with Uranus and Taurus is you could almost separate it because the history of Uranus and Taurus is basically a lecture unto itself because it is so fascinating the things that have happened historically um, when we've had Uranus and Taurus. Yeah, I. I had the idea that I was going to do like a, you know, a really abbreviated run through of the history. And I did. I like, I, I cut down the number of so events much. I had on my slides by, I don't know, a factor of three, just, just enough to make the point and establish the themes rather than go over everything. And it still took forever. Also, it's, you know, it's, you, uh, it's Uranus and Taurus, right? It took an unusually long time, right? Like Taurus, you know, Taurus as a pattern is that which is long and slow and continues. And yes. so that's, you know, <laughs> that was the nature of the talk as well. Brilliant. Well, that sounds uh, great. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about Uranus and Taurus as we get further into that, uh, the, you know, this episode, since that's obviously still one of the major things going on, uh, in addition to the Mars retrograde and everything else. Um, as for me, for June, I am basically just recovering from UAC, and um, a lot of students signed up for my Hellenistic course over the past month, and so I'm starting a new group of people over the next month with the Hellenistic course, and I'm going to re- uh, restart some lecture series that I've been doing where we read through some ancient texts together as a class and then discuss them and kind of analyze what the author is saying and then start applying some of those techniques in practice. So uh, we're going to focus especially on some of the timing techniques like annual perfections and the advanced method of perfections, which I'm doing a workshop on at UAC, and I'm hoping to add uh, that recording to my course and do some more talks on it this summer about how to use annual perfections to time the activation of specific parts of the chart and specific topics in individual years. So you know everybody has those years where sometimes 
you have one part of your life that goes really well and another part of your life that is just a disaster. And perfections, there's a really good technique for isolating that and figuring out what part of the life is going to go well in a given year versus where you're going to have some challenges. So for more information about that, you can check out my Hellenistic course, which is at uh, uh, theastrologyschool.com. All right, so let's jump right into the forecast for this month. Um, right at the top of the month, obviously, you know, recording this on May 18th, so just a few days ago, Uranus ingressed into Taurus, where it's going to stay for the greater part of the ne- next decade. And the other thing that happened immediately after that is that Mars ingressed into Aries, or I'm sorry, into Aquarius, where it squared Uranus almost immediately. So we're in that part of the year. I think this is like one of the top major transits that we focused on in our like overview for the entire year that we recorded back in December, uh, if not like the the biggest transit. I mean, is this the biggest one that we really focused on this year? Was the the Uranus ingress into Taurus followed immediately by the Mars square? This was top three. Top three. Okay. Um, and then it's not just that ingress, of course, that takes place of you know Uranus into Taurus and Mars into Aquarius, but then just a few weeks later. Uh, sometime in June, we get Mars actually slowing down and stationing retrograde in Aquarius, right? Absolutely. And that'll be, that's one of this month's, that's one of June's hot topics, as it were. Sure. That seems to be the the central one that I, I'm sure we'll probably spend the most time focusing on. Um, but in terms of the top of the month, I mean, where should we start? Do you want to start with the big sort of elephant in the room, or should we just do it sort of uh, chronologically from from the top of the month? Well, before we do that, I think it would be nice to take five minutes to talk about what the Uranus, what Uranus's ingress into Taurus, you know, did obviously in the news, as well as what our experiences, if any, were of it. Okay, sure. Yeah. What have you guys seen so far? I mean, I have not been paying attention to the news, so I'm not not even sure what's been going on, but I know some some astrologers have been identifying certain things that that they feel like is correlating with it. Well, um, on a very simple level, and uh, I think the most literal possible manifestation of the disruptive planet Uranus in an Earth sign, there were you know there were the Hawaiian uh, eruptions leading up to the ingress. And then shortly after the ingress, uh, Kilauea blew uh, blew much bigger. Like that, the you know the how should we, uh, the it ran the instability of the Earth ramped up noticeably right after the ingress. I you know I thought that the the ongoing eruption was a you know a good enough sink, but um, <laughs> you know it had to go and get more intense right after the ingress. So that was sort of that's sort of a gimme. Um, yeah, major Earth changes classic. with a disruptive planet moving into an Earth sign. Yeah, and boy, uh, it's not pretty when you look at the history. Um, natural disasters galore. You know that is, um, um, you know that that I, I, again, that's sort of the first thing that comes to mind with Uranus and Taurus. And sometimes the first thing that comes to mind doesn't end up sitting so well in the historical record. But this is one of those where. You you know you're like well I don't know disrupted Earth and it's all over the place. 
Yeah, one of the, this is not relevant right now, um, but there's an image that Lynn Bell talked about in an article she wrote on Uranus in Taurus for the previous cycle about how in the bombings in London, people were hiding underground to protect themselves from the warfare coming from the sky, like the bombs being dropped on the city of London. And I thought that imagery of like Uranus, the sky god, literally like lightning bolts or a modern day version of that, which would be bombs. And people going into these tunnels underneath, you know, the bomb shelters, which are underground to try and protect themselves from that. So it, it's such striking imagery that even though it's not necessarily what we're seeing now, that's something that I keep thinking about um, as we're crossing this threshold. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, I don't know if you saw my column where I, where I discussed the ingress, but the metaphor that was the visual that was. Oh, yeah, you had fallen earth or something, didn't you? Fallen to earth, the Fallen imagery that earth. the little yeah. visionary imagery that um, uh, asserted itself in my mind when I was thinking about it repeatedly um, was like a, a, a meteorite or a stone, like fallen to earth, but then buried in the earth and changing it, like a little, like a like a virus laden thing, that. like yes. awakening and tra- and changing uh, and disrupting the land, like the like a. Uh, you know, uh, a stone fallen to earth was the implication of fallen to earth. And that there's that really, there's the interesting quality of heavenly or celestial, you know, Uranian power um, coming from below, even though its origin is above. Mm. Demetra George, um, did you, or did you read, did you read Demetra's piece? Yes. So I really liked um, her, her reference to the pairing of Uranus and Gaia yeah. in Greek myth and how, you know, uh, Uranus uh, impregnates Gaia and then Gaia, the earth has these children that rise up from the depths, but they, you know, they're born from a celestial seed. Um, I thought her location of uh, the Uranus and Taurus Uranus and Taurus in that particular mythscape was very compelling. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, And then I guess just a very almost cliche personal example. I've just felt so frustrated this, you know, that week that Mars was squaring Uranus. Very frustrating. Nothing could happen fast enough. And just sort of that internal anger boiling. And I saw a lot of people saying the same kind of thing uh, on social media around that. Yeah. I, I I had that. What, just what, due, to, due to the Mars Uranus square. Yeah, I was just feeling. I've I've been feeling um, rebellious. <laughs> you know, it's just you know to a certain degree, it's it's Uranus in Taurus, but it's also just a Uranus ingress, which just turns up the volume on all of the Uranian themes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I'm sharing the chart for right now, just showing today on May 18th, we've got Uranus at zero degrees of Taurus in 10 minutes, and Mars is at one degree, uh, the first degree of Aquarius and zero minutes. So it's just moved into one degree of Aquarius. Yeah. And so um, really obvious stuff that happened this week, uh, the North and South Korea talks uh, got disrupted, I think, on the day of ingress. Um, uh, Wall Street took a hit, not a huge hit, but it took a, it, it had a little dip uh, right around, uh, I believe, the day after the ingress. Um, yeah, yeah. It was really interesting to talk about it for three and a half hours immediately after it happened. 
Um, you know, you obviously have to know some things ahead of time to give a talk, but in talking to people about it, you often discover new things. You're kind of entwining yourself with that with that current and discovering it as you go. Mm. Yeah. One of the things that's tricky about stuff like this is like when a planet ingresses into a new sign, you often start seeing like the rumblings of some of the changes to come or some of the themes that are going to come up during the course of that transit. But it's funny because they're not always like fully formulated. It's not always just like, you know, the planet moves in and then bam, you get like a specific event that just clearly is a clear manifestation of, of that archetype. But instead, sometimes you just get like little previews of it that sometimes you don't realize until much later how those little, almost inconsequential changes at the beginning uh, would become, uh, you know, indic- indicative of larger changes later on. Um, and with this one, it's almost uh, re-emphasized or emphasized twice because of that Mars retrograde, because the Mars Uranus square is the first in a sequence of three. So with some of these things, like with the North Korea talks being sort of dis- disrupted or something, I feel like we're in the short term, like with the Mars retrograde, looking at a sequence of events that's going to play out over the next several months as we get Mars going back and forth over that square with Uranus. But then also in the long term, like over the next decades, some of the things that are happening right now as Uranus has just moved into Taurus are going to be indicative of that longer term transit as it moves through that sign over the next seven years. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good point, actually. There was a lot of commentary on social media where people like, nothing happened. And I think that point that you're speaking to there, Chris, that sometimes it's the seed of what will unfold over the length of the cycle, particularly, you know, either the Mars Uranus square or just over the next kind of nine to 10 months as Uranus bounces around the early degrees of Taurus. And it may be something that you got frustrated by this week or something that irritated you or that, you know, bolt of insight that you had happen this week that becomes your motivation or the thing that you work towards over either the May to September period, which is the Mars to Mars square Uranus, or May to about April of 2019, which will be the Mars through that zero degrees of Uranus. Sorry, Uranus through the zero degrees of Taurus. I've said these words so many times this week. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think by the end of the next month, everybody's going to have Uranus and Taurus fatigue. Yes. And then Mars and Aquarius and, you know, they're all words that you have to be really um, clear with your, you know, with your speech. (laughs) I think I feel like Austin, you know, these problems. I do. I experience them daily. Yeah. I call it like I lose my words. Um, Anyway. All right. So (laughs) an example of today. So this is what things are looking like now in terms of the Uranus ingress just having taken place, the Mars ingress having recently taken place. Um, If we sort of fast forward, though, to the beginning of the actual month that we're talking about to June 1st, you know, things are a little bit further along. So Mars is Mars starts out the month at five degrees of Aquarius. I think it eventually stations later in June at like nine degrees, right? I believe that is the case. That is correct. Okay. And that station is not going to actually take place until June 26th, about at nine degrees of Aquarius. But already, basically, it's, it's getting very close by the opening of the month. So especially for people that have planets in fixed signs around those degrees, around like nine degrees of Aquarius or Scorpio or Leo or Taurus, 
you're basically most of this month going to have Mars grinding across those degrees and grinding to a halt right at nine degrees of Aquarius by the end of June. Yes. Yeah. All right. So aside from that, I mean, that, I mean, to me, that's the main thing I almost want to focus on here, but is there other things at the top of the month that we should talk about before the sort of focus on just that, that station of Mars in Aquarius? Well, yeah. Um, let's see. There's uh, one of the nicer things uh, about June, especially the first part of June, is that we have Mercury and Gemini. And so Mercury, of course, rules Gemini. And so it's good. It's good for the uh, it's good. Good for mercurial endeavors. It is invisible uh, for most of June, though. Um, and that's yes. because June has yes. June holds the conjunction of the sun, the superior conjunction of the sun and Mercury. So this is the one with Mercury on the far side of the sun, as opposed to the retrograde conjunction of the sun and Mercury, which is Mercury between us and the sun. And so that exact conjunction is on the 5th of June. Um, And there are a couple things to say about that. But so I, I'd like to throw this out there as both a practical and theoretical concern. Um, generally speaking, when planets are close to the sun, they're combust. You can't see them and they don't work as well, right? If you're seeing it as a, you know, if you're looking at it as an influence on a period of time that the current of that planet is weak, there's not much to drink from. However, there is uh, a Hellenistic rule, and Chris, you can probably cite the source, that a planet which is in that a planet which is in its own sign, uh, or I believe its sign of exaltation, gets to shake off or is shielded from the effects of combustion. I believe that's the planet being in its its chariot or a, a, you know a, a, having a parasol. Yeah, the so, idea of a planet in its chariot as a mitigating condition is in Antiochus and Porphyry and Rhetorius. So it appears to be a pretty common uh, rule in the Hellenistic tradition from very early on. Yeah, and so I, I'm curious what y'all, uh, um, how y'all see that working out? Because when I, when I see it and watch it, what I find is that the planets, the quality of the planet's action, is um, not reduced at all. You know, it has its you know high quality Mercury in this case with Mercury and Gemini. Uh, however, the intensity or strength of the planet is it is weak and combust it's just that what gets through is you know is is isn't burnt up it's it's good stuff but it's still it's as if the the signal is not uh degraded in quality but the volume is lower yeah i mean i've always found that mitigating condi- condition of a planet being in its own sign or exaltation and therefore not as debilitated by being under the beams to be a, a really solid mitigating condition to pay attention to and this one's this particular one's funny though because Lisa and I were looking at this for elections this month, and it would otherwise be a, a nice potentially electional date uh, with Mercury in its own sign in the heart of the Sun at 15 degrees of Gemini. But you have this like really tight square from Neptune at the same time at 16 degrees of Pisces. So there's this interesting like doubling up of on the one hand Mercury being under the beams, which sometimes was interpreted in in ancient astrology as indicating something hidden or behind the scenes or secretive about the planetary placement or something internalized. And then you have also Mercury and the Sun squaring Neptune at the same time, which can sometimes be associated with 
you know, deception or or lying or um, misconstruing the truth in some sense. So you almost get like a double indication for that. And we were having a hard time with that because we wanted to, on the one hand, use Mercury and Gemini or recommend it as an election, but we had a hard time describing like what you could use that for in for like non nefarious things. Because uh, <laughs> we we didn't want to like recommend like use this election for deceptive matters or. Or, or what have you. It's not like we're writing the Picatrix or something. It's favorable for works of deception and treachery. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I think about when planets are very close to the sun, I think about the sun as the ancient symbol of wisdom and the planet having access to some sort of specific insight or knowledge that is normally unavailable to that planet or is normally unavailable to most of us. So, Something that was maybe more productive than treachery and deception for this particular aspect could be something about meditation rituals to do with one's religious or philosophical practice, um, where you get a particular teaching and you find, you might not understand the whole thing, but you might get that kernel, that key that helps unlock something for you. That's perfect. Yeah. So going uh, inside, going deep inside mm. on like an internal sort of type journey. Um, especially one of the mind or of the spirit, uh, that would be a great manifestation of that Sun-Mercury conjunction in Gemini square Neptune. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of other mystical, mischievous things people can get up to, but I think there's a little bit. I often think about this with with planets that are, even planets that are combust, um, not just Kazemi, that the proximity to the Sun is difficult for certain things, but it does give you access to something that is not normally available. Absolutely. Yeah. I always thought that that interpretation of like how some of the Hellenistic astrologers would interpret planets that were not under the beams as being externalized and planets that were under the beams as being something internal. Like they were often interpreting that literally, like internal ailments ah. versus like an external injury. And I always thought that that was a really sort of um, positive or, or fertile sort of area of research for modern applications of the technique and how you might integrate the concept of being under be the beams as a you know useful interpretive principle that could have some some other modern value versus just you know afflicted versus not afflicted but that there could be some psychological component or something like that to it yeah definitely sure yeah. so uh yeah so that's happening very early in the month on June 5th already um it's interesting that right at the same time as that Sun-Mercury conjunction, it looks like Venus is opposing Pluto almost exactly like simultaneously at 2059 It, is, it does happen on the same day, yes. Yeah, at 20 degrees of Cancer, opposing Pluto at 20 degrees of Capricorn uh, down to the minute. So I think it's just like an hour, hour or two later that goes exact right around the same time. So it looks like we've got like a two- very specific alignments or very specific signatures that are are sort of happening at that moment, and it would be interesting if both of those were tied into somebody's chart at the same time. Um, you know, those would be some pretty notable triggers. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting and kind of strange set of things. Um, and you know, I think part of what's interesting about it is that um, they're all saying different things. Uh, a Venus Pluto opposition says so something very different from a Mercury Neptune square. <laughs> and I, I do want to just take a second to say 
I don't think that any planet is as disruptive to Mercury as Neptune. I think Neptune is basically poison to Mercury. Um, right. Whenever I see, um, you know, strong contacts between Mercury and Neptune in the sky, I I always see and sometimes experience events that are straight out of the Mercury retrograde playbook. Um, you know, where somebody, you know, somebody forgets, somebody, you know, um, you know, leaves their phone at the restaurant or drops their phone into something or the emails don't work or, you know, or whatever. Um, there are, you know, there is, of course, a reconciliation possible as there are with any planetary pairing, but that's a difficult one. And it doesn't seem to, uh, doesn't seem to consistently yield anything that people like. Yeah, just because they're kind of antithetical because Mercury fundamentally is trying to convey something, I, I guess, convey or to transfer something. Like usually that's information, like by speaking or communication, whereas Neptune is typically in, in what it actually does, practically speaking, is making things less clear or is introducing ambiguity into situations, which when you introduce it to Mercury, then automatically disrupts the communication in some way, usually by making it ambiguous or or misunderstood or um, not correct or inaccurate in some ways. Yeah, exactly. Mercury is trying to sort things into piles based on yes. similarity and difference, um, you know, which is a, a, a differentiation. And Neptune undifferentiates, right? Neptune melts everything in the stew pot into one thing, whereas Mercury separates. And so, uh, yeah, Mercury's, Mercury's action of um, obtaining clarity by means of separation and contrast is, um, you know, <laughs> uh, contradicted by Neptune's essential action. So there is an obscuring quality to this particular Sun, Mercury, Kazemi, and Gemini, which would not otherwise normally be there because of the aspect. And I think that haze, if you like, that Neptunian haze, we'll see that over the next couple of days because the Sun, Mercury, Kazemi happens on the 5th and then on the 6th and 7th, the Sun and Mercury each move into the exact square with Neptune. So it is, it feels very foggy for this first week of June that there yeah. is, you know, there may not be clarity, there may not be order, your piles will not be neat. Um, there may be connection or there may be insight, you know, you might be hugging everyone because you've had too many drinks. Um, but not, you know, when I, th I always find when Mercury struggles, it, it really struggles with the specific Mercury things that it likes to do, which is to be clear or to be concise. And, uh, and so we'll see a lack of those things. I think the middle of this first week of June. Yeah. And I think with the, that, that big power of the Mercury sun conjunction, um, you know, uh, you see the intense, clarity of mercury conjunct the sun in gemini attempting to pierce the fog bank right and so that's where the that's where the the action happens right is the attempt to uh to clarify what is confusing yes yeah the attempt i guess potentially the unsuccessful attempt <laughs> yeah or perhaps the the necessity right like oh i got to get this figured out yeah great Right. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, not to get too political, but that's been over the past year a great reminder and like lesson in the Mercury Neptune stuff, which is just 
that's one of the closer aspects in Trump's chart, and it's one of the ones that he manifests the most regularly and sort of readily, which at the very lowest level or like the most polite level is just sometimes questioning or creating um sort of uh foggying up situations sometimes by raising like alternate scenarios or questioning what seems to be the case and then saying maybe it's something else or something like that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it may I it's funny you mentioned the politics, Chris, because I was thinking that as we were talking and I was wondering whether the Sun Mercury might represent um, a journalist or a publication or a broadcast of some kind who has got some really sharp insight, but is having trouble getting their message through in, you know, the fake kind of news or the, um, the, the crazy Neptune buzz, I guess. Um, so it, it almost feels a little bit like maybe read between the lines or look for that thing that's trying to get out that doesn't come through as clearly as it might otherwise. Sure. And, and, and not to be overwhelmed by. By maybe the um, nebulousness, because that, that seems to be one of the things that's happening sometimes with uh, some of the recent like fake news and social media stuff is that sometimes there's almost like a it seems like a deliberate strategy to raise so many different possible scenarios that everybody throws up at their hands because they don't know what the truth is, or to muddy the waters by raising so many different possibilities or or scenarios that nobody really knows what's going on. Um, so seeing that contrast in something like this here, Kelly, that is probably like good advice in terms of attempting to not be overwhelmed by that. Yeah. And I mean, trying not to be overwhelmed when Neptune's active. And I mean, one of the listeners in the chat box is commenting on the fact that this is all going to happen with the moon in, in Pisces with Neptune as well. So, you know, we might not see things right away. And I guess the other significant thing with Mercury this month is when it becomes visible later in the month. And Austin, you might have spotted this. I'm, I'm sure you did with your everyday thing, which just <laughs> moves me to a higher standard every month. But when Mercury becomes visible, which is not till around the, the 19th or 20th, if we're using that 15 degree marker, it actually does so as it forms a trine to Jupiter. So Mercury has moved into Cancer by then. It, it's literally sort of two weeks on from this sun conjunction. And I, I did wonder about the idea of, A, Mercury emerging from the darkness at that point, but doing so with that touch of Jupiter and whether there is something that is unclear in the first week of June but becomes more clear or makes more sense by that third week of June. Um, but I was interested to hear what you guys thought about that given it's a little bit interesting, I think, to have Mercury emerging with that particular aspect. Yeah. Well, um, so let's talk a little bit about how Mercury gets there um, because we've got- Yeah. I mean, there's stuff between then for sure. So I didn't know if we- Well, yeah. I, 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 so I, I think it'd be useful to talk about the, the new moon on the okay. 12th um, because Mercury, Mercury um, moves into Cancer right before the new moon. Um, the, the sun and moon almost, the moon almost catches up to Mercury and Gemini, but by the time the moon gets to the end of Gemini, Mercury's moved into cancer, right? Which is, um, and that's during the period where Mercury is on his way back to visibility, but has not become visible yet. And that shift into cancer is very, I mean, that's one of the most, uh, I would say, dramatic in terms of the from one sign to another shift like gemini to cancer it's very very active um manic young 
into, you know, very yin cancer. And that's, um, I would say, additionally emphasized by Mercury, who's so strong and overactive um, in Gemini and then, you know, becomes very heartfelt um, and sensitive and shy in cancer. And of course, Mercury has to oppose Saturn um, before he gets to it, before uh, he can arise again visibly. So it's funny we go from like, you know, Mercury, Neptune. Oh, go ahead. I was just saying, that's beautiful, Austin. I mean, I'm just taken by your poetry. Oh, okay. Thanks. Um, but yeah, we've got like, you know, it's, so it's basically, you know, uh, Mercury in Gemini, but then contending with Neptune. And then it's Mercury in Cancer, um, you know, which is very, you know, again, thinking about the personal, emotional implications of things, that level of communication with people, tone, right? And that's uh, Merc, and that's you know, and while Mercury's doing that, it's opposed, it's opposing Saturn, right? Feelings and facts, um, which are which are which, and what is the priority of both? And then once Mercury gets done with that square with, or excuse me, opposition with Saturn and Capricorn, then it gets to arise, um, basically in a grand trine with Jupiter and Neptune. Yeah, yeah, I like that sequence. So, so Neptune. Neptune and the 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 lies or the illusions associated with that square with Neptune Mercury then Mercury gets out of that eventually around the time of the new moon and hits the sort of stark reality of the opposition with Saturn followed by eventually it it makes that heliacal rising and trines Jupiter later in the month and by that time of course we're already getting close to Mars stationing retrograde yeah yeah not right. sure how I feel about um, a very sensitive emotional Mercury in Cancer um, coinciding with that Mars retrograde. <laughs> I mean, I, some things yeah. are best not felt. Not felt and not said. Um, yeah. There is a lot of water still in that like June 18, 19, 20 period with yeah. the because Mer- Neptune stations then as well. So, there's just these periods of real wetness. And as you said, Austin, the emotion and the feeling, and then what we do with that, you know, what do we do with those feelings? And it's a month where Mars is going retrograde and it is going retrograde near the South Node. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting that, so that new moon, every, you know, every new moon is significant. It's the beginning and end of one lunar cycle. Um, But this new moon, um, is particularly interesting because we have basically we have two planetary ingresses within a day. Mercury station, or excuse me, Mercury enters Cancer right before the new moon. New moon's on the thirteenth, uh, uh, right? So Mercury, um, um, Mercury stations right. Blech, Mercury. <laughs> I'm jinxed. Um, I know. Right? Oh, yeah, I don't know. I blame. I'll, I'll blame Uranus and Taurus. Um, but so. The new moon is on June 13th. It is in the third decan of Gemini. And right before that, Mercury enters Cancer. And right after that, Venus enters Leo. And Venus entering Leo, of course, is a shift, right? We go from Mm. comfort and intimacy-seeking Venus in Cancer to much more bombastic, um, extroverted Venus in Leo. And Venus in Leo will also give us a preview um, of what Mars is up to, because Mars is eight, you know, is at eight nine, um, eight nine Aquarius. It'll be there for the second half of the month because it's so slow. 
And so Venus moving through early Leo will will be in opposition to Mars um, for, yes. you know, a, a solid week. And so that's interesting. You know, that'll kick off some of the relational dynamics, which the Mar which uh, the Mars cycle has in store for us. That, that's I a really like good that. point, because Venus, um, I'd forgotten about this, that Venus squares, now that we have Uranus in like early Taurus, every time we get an ingress into a fixed sign, yes. it gets that hard aspect from from Uranus. Like right away, it's not just Venus moving into to Leo and then eventually opposing Mars and eventually squaring Jupiter, but its very first aspect as soon as it goes into that sign is that square with Uranus. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, it's you know Uranus yeah. and then Mar- and then Mars, um, which is um, you know um, and by square in opposition. So that's um, that's that's a less happy Venus in Leo than we might see under other circumstances. I sure. mean, it, it feels like a bit of relationship drama potentially, or you know the, the the cliche unexpected twist in the relationship story or in the dating story, depending on your circumstances. And that is going to happen over the next few months as planets start to ingress into Leo. We've got Venus going first, but by the end of June, we will have Mercury and of course, late July, the sun. And because Mars is spending so much time in the early part of Aquarius and Uranus moves so slowly, there is this sort of one, two punch kind of feeling, you know, Venus goes into Leo um, June 13, it'll square Uranus on June 14. And then a week later, on the 21st, that Venus-Mars um, opposition becomes exact. So it looks a bit hot. It looks a bit feisty. It looks a bit, you know, it could be passionate, but there's probably going to be a few hot words and a few disagreements there as well. Yeah. I mean, I mean if you want to get in a of... fight, it's a good, uh, it's a good election. <laughs> right. Um, it makes me think, just going back a little bit to the uh, Sun-Mercury conjunction around uh, the 5th or 6th and the simultaneous Venus-Pluto opposition. I just wanted to mention that because there's this great story in the news recently that reminded me of like what Venus-Pluto aspects are like in general, especially the hard aspects. Uh, and I saw it in C- on CNN, but it was a f- around a few places. But the title was on the Washington Post was like, woman explains why she sent her date 65,000 text messages after they went on one date together. And that's a good, I, I, it's been a while since I've seen like a really good Venus Pluto story, but that's like the type of thing that you see with Venus Pluto, where it's like Venus sometimes represents, you know, love and attraction and, and the desire to like form a relationship. And Pluto just takes like one of my favorite um, analogies is the astrologer Alan White. He always said that Pluto takes something that's very small and like blows it up into something that's very large sort of like an like an atom bomb where you take an atom and just by splitting something like an atom, suddenly you get a mushroom cloud. Um, or other times he said it can do the reverse and it can take something very big and shrink it down into something very small. But um, typically it's the, the first one going from the very small to the very large. Uh, and I think that's a really good analogy for that. But that might be a good analogy to think about around the time of that Sun-Mercury conjunction square Neptune with the other part of it, which is just the weirdly close Venus-Pluto opposition at the same time. Um, but it just made me think of that since the next signature we're talking about, really not not that long after that, just like a, a week or two later, is that uh, Venus-Uranus square as soon as it ingresses into Leo. And that becomes one of the major signatures later this year, I just remembered as well. Because remember, when Venus goes retrograde 
later this year, I think in Scorpio, it's like opposing Uranus three times. So yep. that, that that's going to be a major, that Venus-Uranus thing is one of the major signatures for later this year. And and here we're getting kind of like a preview of that with the first time that Venus is hitting a hard aspect with Uranus now that it's moved into a fixed sign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And important, and oh, go ahead. You you go, Austin. <laughs> oh, um, and important to note, um, you know, any planet, any of the planets aspecting Uranus in Taurus now is going to, you know, be introducing and carrying that, introducing that Uranus and Taurus storyline. But Venus is more crucial than the rest because Venus rules Taurus. And so whenever there's a Venus-Uranus contact, it's Uranus, um, it's Uranus aspecting the Lord or Lady, you know, the ruler of it. The ruler of itself. And so in terms of looking at your own transits, if, you know, for example, you have Uranus, uh, Uranus in Taurus is in your seventh house. Um, then it's during those uh, those contacts between Uranus and Venus that it's going that that you know that events will be triggered right um, when a planet aspects the ruler of of the sign that it's in um, events come about and things get moving much more quickly. That's a really beautiful point, Austin, and I think that highlights why that sort of June fourteenth period when Uran- when Venus makes that square to Uranus as so critical. This is not the first Venus-Uranus aspect we have. We we do have one in May where Venus sextiles um, Uranus from Cancer, but I think this will be the first sort of more hard or dramatic angle between Venus and Uranus. And that, to me, I agree, that's like I'm watching that date to see how some of the events that were maybe promised or initially stirred up or came into your awareness in mid-May, how they, you know, progress or that there's a an activation or a development in that story as Venus triggers Uranus then towards the end yeah, of June. Yeah, it's really interesting because that Venus being there, um, it's, you know, it, uh, there being the the early part of Leo, the first decan of Leo, um, it ties into the Mars story that's coming up. It ties into the Uranus and Taurus story and it's on the North Node. So it also ties into the Eclipse story. Um, as well as yeah. foreshadowing to some degree the retrograde later in the year. So, yeah, um, a more important ingress than it initially looks like. Than it appears to be. And speaking of the Venus retrograde later in the year, she'll station at 10 Scorpio. So it's just another emphasis in this sort of, you know, around that 8, 9, 10 degrees of the fixed signs Mars stations at nine Aquarius in June, and then Venus will station at 10 Scorpio. It is later in the year, but we're, we're getting a pattern developing here where the, that first decan of the fixed signs is really getting quite heavily activated um, by some of these cycles over the next little while. Yeah, I'm really interested because I have, I have Venus in the first decan of Aquarius, and it's my perfected planet this year. And so oh, it's just juicy. getting all it's, you know, it's gotten some attention, and it's, but it's going to get a lot more, um, you know, Mars will be over it three times. Uranus stations in an exact square with it. Um, Venus is going to square it. It's, um, you know, for, so for those of you who have planets in the first decade of fixed signs, there's a, there's a lot of, um, a lot of entertainment to come. Yeah, and we actually have a good question from one of the patrons who's attending the live recording of this right now. So this is from Danny Larkin, and he said, I'd be interested to hear how to work constructively with uh, the change indicated by Uranus. So that's actually a really good 
question, how do you work constructively with, you know, if you're getting a major Uranus transit where for some people with this planet changing signs recently, you know, that's introducing a whole new theme into their life with some of these Uranian type archetypal changes. And how do you, how can you deal with that constructively? And that's actually a good question, I think, because sometimes, like, I have an issue where it seems like a lot of the outer planets, one of the only answers sometimes that I can come up with, which unfortunately is applicable to a lot of them, is just that you have to sort of let go and become adaptable and let let the change take you where where it will instead of trying sometimes to hold on to something that's slipping away in your life if that's part of what that transit is about um, but I don't know if that's actually a constructive you know proactive like attempt to take charge of things rather than just dealing with that which is outside of your control um I have so many thoughts on this so <laughs> I'm sure Austin does. So I've had a bunch of clients this week who have the sun at zero Taurus. And I had one client um, earlier today with the moon in in early Taurus. So there is sort of this similar theme. Each of them has this story that says, I've stopped doing X voluntarily. Like I've stopped doing my salary job or I'm deciding to sell my home and I'm going to rent for a period of time. Um, you know, I'm stopped doing a salary job and I'm going to work freelance or contract, if you like, for a period of time. So I think there are de- there is definitely scope for considering the qualities of Uranus and then proactively looking to make changes that express those qualities. And because Uranus is about freedom and independence, one of the really classic things, if it shows up in a way connected to work, will be people looking to step away from safe, stable, or, you know, regular types of employment where you might be on a nine to five schedule, you might be on a regular paycheck and wanting to consider work that is more flexible, which could be freelance or contract. It might also be, depending on exactly what it's doing in the chart, it can be a real pivot in the career where I used to do banking and now I'm finally going to follow my passion for music, for instance. So part of it, I think, is that if we know Uranus is active, we know that you're in a time where that more radical shift is maybe encouraged or more likely to happen, or you're more restless and you know impatient and itchy for it. So I think if you can think about what planet it's triggering, so if it's triggering Venus, it could be relationships. If it's triggering the moon, it could be make, I mean, Uranus moon transits, I see people become gypsies or couch surfers. I've seen clients, middle, like older clients in their 50s and 60s and 70s decide to give up their stable place of residence to go traveling or just to, you know, move around in Airbnbs when they're having Uranus moon transits. So any way that you can put yourself back in motion, um, I think is really cool with Uranus. And, and the idea is if you choose it, you can more likely do it in a way that's a little bit more on your terms or a little bit more meets your needs. Um, so that's, we were actually just talking about somebody that, you know, Austin, who's close to you, that's kind of going through that right now. Do you feel like, like sharing that? Cause that's actually a really good example of what Kelly was talking about. Oh, um, well, it's, um, I, the, yeah, somebody, um, somebody I know who's a Taurus rising, um, is coincidentally, uh, leaving their place of residence at the end of the month and doesn't, um, doesn't have like, I'm going to move from here to there. Yeah. It's sort of a, from being here to question mark, right? Yes. To, to to a period of exploration, 
And so, so, um, you know, I, I, obviously I spent like an hour and a half, um, two days ago talking about how to deal with Uranus in Taurus transits. <laughs> so I had some thoughts. Um, one of my rules of thumb for Uranus transits in general, um, is to embrace an experimental attitude. Um, because, you know, Uranus is, it's the planet of mad science and, you know, a progress in knowledge and science is through experimentation. You know, you come to know things by trying it out and seeing if it works the way you thought it would, or it does something different. You have to get data, right? And to get data, you gotta, you gotta experiment. And it's, there's no point in doing an experiment if you already are certain, uh, as to the result, Right. That's what an experiment is. And so um, being okay with the accepting the ambivalence and incomplete knowledge um, that, you know, characterizes your situation and experimenting to get more data, right? You're like, oh, God, I've always wondered what it would be like to, you know, whatever, pursue music. To blank. Yeah. And then people – and what I see all the time is – People are people don't want to make a change until they're absolutely certain what's on the other side of that change. Um, but you can never be absolutely certain if you've never done that before, right? And so part of so what you get with this attachment to certainty uh, is you get people either not changing, right, even though it's becoming glaringly obvious that that has to go, or they change and uh, they change, but they assume this whole false narrative of how exactly how it's going to go. It's it's fake control. Yeah. It's not real control. It's a it's a control fantasy. Um, and you know, and and they're like, I'm going to make this change, and then it's going to be permanent. It's like, well, you know what? Maybe you're not sure, and that's okay. And you can just give it a go and see what that's like, right? And like I, I, you know, I, I see people get in trouble with making giant permanent leaps. Um, and sometimes that's just what's got to happen. But in a lot of cases, like you've got room to wiggle your toes in that pond. You've got time to, you know, um, to try this out for a little bit and, and figure it out. You know, maybe you're, maybe again, maybe you're a banker who's fantasized about being a musician, but like, you know, you do that for a couple months. You're like, you know what? this kind of sucks. Like I, I'm not, this is, I don't want this for my life. I just like music and that how, you know, getting that data by experimenting will allow you to be more informed in the future. So anyway. Yeah. yeah or, or sometimes just a necessity of getting that out of your systems so that you know what that experience or that side of life is like, or could be like, and maybe you do find that it's not for you, but still at the time you, you perhaps needed to have that experience. Yeah. Well, and, and again, if you just ground yourself in uncertainty, um, then that's great because now you're just looking for information rather than like, this has to work. This has to be the thing. Um, yeah. And so, and so there's actually an interesting question um, in the comments section, which is how is the ambivalence of Uranus different than Neptune? And I, I, I think that um, the difference is the directionality. Uranus is chaos leading to insight. Right. It's the it's the unknown of the of the science experiment that by experimenting becomes known. Right. Whereas Neptune, uh, Neptune, <laughs> Neptune is about going into the ambivalence, whereas Uranus starts ambivalent, but then gets to, oh, this is the result. Yeah, right. that's it's a like, really good question. To boldly go where no man has gone before versus what embracing embracing uh, amb ambivalence for the sake of it on, on some level? 
Yeah, well, if we think about Neptune, Neptune facilitates um, states of consciousness which are deep trance, right? And that's, you know, that's part of uh, the connection between Neptune and drug addiction is the like wanting to, you know, wanting to fall into a a trance of undifferentiated, unbroken experience, right? Getting drunk, doing heroin, whatever it is. Um, and yeah, whereas, and then they're, and, or doing mystical, you know, doing prayer, um, for eight hours at a time until you get that vision of God, like that's Neptune, that like sinking, seeking that deeper undifferentiated unity. What were you going to say about, about that Kelly? Um, oh, I just like, <laughs> I feel like Austin have so many thoughts. Um, a couple of very quick points on the Uranus transits again, short time frames. So think in three or six month increments rather than think. I agree completely, Austin, what you're saying about it's not really a time to make a change that you think is going to be permanent that you'll stick to with in the long term. It's more, a, I, I loved your analogy too about the scientists because I always say with Uranus transits, it's a period of trial and error. You're going to try a few things and Three out of four of what you try is not going to be right for you, but you will not know unless you get in there and give it a go. And the point, so it's the try anything once, you know, just have a go. Mm -hmm. Um, And then letting go of the attachment to the outcome, because the point is to really act on those curiosities that you've got rather than to achieve something specific. And often that idea of return to stability, like when does my life calm down again, is usually after the Uranus transit has completed its exact hits. And so the period, like the experimentation period where you're gathering your data is the length. I've known, that's what I've noticed with clients, the length of the transit itself. Um, yeah. Totally. You just, just give up the dream of it being stable while you're in a big Uranus transit because it's flux, but it's excitement and there's progress. It just feels very chaotic as you go through it. Yeah. I like that characterization of trial and error. Um, I would also point out that there's no such thing as a failed experiment. The point yeah. of an experiment is to gather data. Yeah, that's a good point. You always get data. That's true. You always get data. You just the, People think they failed when they don't get the outcome they thought they should have. And that's that's an internal issue rather than external thing. Right. Yeah. So, sorry about your hypothesis, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. But it's all good. And, and one of the things that things that might be worth mentioning also though is because one of the issues I have sometimes in answering a question like that, how to deal constructively, is that sometimes the changes, like in one of those examples, uh, where the guy, you know, is gonna sort of live like a nomadic lifestyle for a little bit and, and that's like a choice that he's made or it's an opportunity that arose that he's following up on for however long that ends up taking him as that Uranus transit becomes more prominent in his life, and that's kind of an internal thing, but the Uranus transits aren't necessarily always internal. Sometimes they are external, either in terms of like events that occur in your life or people in your life that suddenly start playing that role in it. Uh, so that that's kind of a tricky thing then sometimes with Uranus transits because sometimes the change can be external and it can re- represent a disruption or a revolution in some part of your life, but it's not necessarily something that's arising from within you. And in those instances, sometimes there's a question of how do you how do you counsel those people or what do you tell them in terms of if it's something that is truly outside of their control versus something that's more um within their control yeah well and the, so very often it's a dialogue between um what happens and what you choose 
Um, in the case of my friend with the Uranus uh, entering the the sign of the rising and you know kind of going off um, at the end of May, um, there the lease agreement was up at the end of May anyway. So that wasn't a um, and uh, that there wasn't an option to stay there. So that wasn't a chosen thing. But then you're sort of like. Okay, and you know, one does that just happen to coincide with an internal change, which is very often the case, right? You know, you're like, oh, I'm ready. You know, like you get handed more responsibility. At the same time, you kind of were just feeling ready about it, or the you know, or the reverse. And so, you know, I think it's always, it's almost always a, a dialogue whenever there's a um, like a real, you know, like like a real hit from Uranus. It's no like I don't know if I've ever seen like Uranus conjoin someone's moon where it's all internal or all external, uh, or all chosen or all just what occurs. Uh, I think whenever you have a big transit, it's always going to be on both sides. That makes sense. Yeah, so. there's there's often the interaction between the external and the internal. Um, and one example, which I've, I had a series of clients earlier this year that had this, they were having Uranus affecting career. And I can't remember specifically whether it was like Uranus on the midheaven or Uranus aspecting the ruler of the midheaven. Um, but their, their work environment, they didn't want to leave their job, but their company went through massive restructuring and re, so the hierarchy within the company got completely reorganized and, some of the counseling strategy that I would have in included in that session would have been things like, you know, what opportunities can you find for yourself in this change? So given that maybe you didn't want to change, but the change is happening anyway, how can you turn it to your advantage? Um, and then also understanding the nature of Uranus, that it is um, spontaneous and it is unpredictable and that you've got this period of time where things may feel like they're happening to you, because that's some people's reality, even though sometimes I think there is a bit of an internal sort of parallel. Um, but it's, and so it's sort of trying to open that perspective around, okay, there's going to be more change or chaos now than you might prefer or that you might choose if you had your way. But if this is the lay of the land or this is the roadmap going forward, um, you know, in what ways could you collaborate with that basically? Sure. Yeah. It was, it was just an interesting question that came up actually earlier this month. When you and I did our experiment where we were reading those charts live oh, or answering yeah. those questions, yes. that was a lot of fun, actually. Thanks for joining me for that. Um, just that sometimes like in a counseling position, when you're talking to a client, even though sometimes there are external events that just happen to people, you still want to be able to say something constructive, and that's the role that the astrologer is often in. So you you know you want to be able to give that advice in terms of what to do or how to respond to certain transits like Uranus and staying flexible, or uh, you know what have you. Um, but but I forgot about that that piece of it and that dynamic of having that desire to to want to be able to give the person some sense of control over the transit, even if it's something that's come into their life that's causing changes that are are somewhat outside of their control. Yeah, well, and I think that control is a very important theme for Uranus transits because Uranus transits virtually always uh, diminish our control over things and our sense of control. You know, Uranus is too, it's a lightning bolt. You can't tell it what to do. Um, and sometimes those lightning bolts are within, sometimes they're outside. But um, trying to, you know, if you're looking at your, uh, you know, at your transits, you're like, okay, Uranus is coming up on my 
I don't know, son in Taurus, come rolling into that with the attitude that I'm going to keep that under control um, is going to make it much less fun. Um, you know, it doesn't mean you have no power, but you're dialoguing with with chaos mm. um, and that, yeah, you don't you don't get to order chaos, right? You don't get to command chaos, but you can dialogue. And I, I, I it makes me think of the Orphic creation story where the the first being, uh, well, you know, so whatever the primordial waters are churned and the, the you know, the, the golden egg appears and the firstborn being uh, comes out of that egg. And in some versions of the story, the very first act by the primordial Eros or Phanes um, is to mate with chaos. Um, and I like that, like, that's, that's the very beginning. Something happens and then, you know, the things get started and the first act once uh, the being uh, once the the being exists is to mate with chaos, and then everything thereafter is the, you know is um, a reproductive die is born out of that reproductive dialogue between you know the shining first being and chaos itself, you know DNA of both. So that's interesting because that's almost like the metaphor then that from chaos comes growth, if you like, or comes the progress or the next step, basically. We've got to have those periods of chaos to move ourselves into the next space. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I just like the idea of, I don't know. Um, Mating with chaos. Yeah. <laughs> For lack of um, other four-letter words. <laughs> We're keeping it relatively G-rated. That was actually the subject of my last episode immediately before this one, which is what what house to assign sex to uh, based on the tradition of three different assignments to different houses. You guys have any thoughts on that? I'm sure that that's a very brief topic, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. So um, fifth as fun and pleasure. Um, I see that. Uh, I also see – and also, you know, the fifth is um, the house of children – and yes. and it is also the house um, of the activity which generates children. Right, um, Pro procreation. With eighth, um, I was very poo I, uh, because like everybody else who started with modern astrology books and then got into traditional stuff. I was like, oh, the eighth house—that's so stupid. It's not doesn't have anything to do with sex. This and that. And I've sort of mellowed on that rejection. That's um, the that's the like cliche thing that traditional astrologers go into when they get into traditional astrology for modern is the rejection of the eighth house as sex. Yeah, that's that's how you show the other traditional astrologers that you know what's up. Um, but um, again, I've mellowed on that a little bit, um, you know, because the eighth has as its essential signification the commingling of resources and the sharing of resources. Um, right. And so, you know, it's, it is the house where, um, one combines one's peanut butter with another's jelly, right? And that could be financial, <laughs> um, or otherwise. And that's so gonna that's, get, that's going to get quoted somewhere. I can see that in a book. Hashtag, like oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, and so I do, I do think the eighth can, um, uh, can speak to a person's sexual experiences and proclivities. And I suppose you need us. You need another person. So the seventh house, um, <laughs> you need a human. Uh, well, hopefully you need a human. Um, I guess the robot thing is happening soon. But so you know, the seventh house provides the other person. So you know, to a certain degree, I suppose it's always there. But I would say fifth, first, and then I can totally see 
where the you know that eighth house opinion and then you know seventh is relating so um you know directly and intimately on a one-on-one level so can't leave that out yeah and then really quickly because i want to hear your thoughts kelly but austin and vedic astrology has a different set of assignments and one of them is the the 12th right Oh, oh yes, something the, I completely oh, yes. forgot. The house, I completely forgot yeah. to mention this in the previous podcast, but I, so I wanted to mention it really quickly here. And I know the you house can speak of bed to that. pleasures. Bed that's pleasures. what they call it. The twelfth. Yeah, well, that's one of the significations traditionally is bed pleasures, which I think with the twelfth makes a lot of sense, both for just lounging in the bed, right, where you're kind of just you and your mind, and that's twelfth house. You know, twelfth house locations, prisons, monasteries. You know, you're you're just there with you. Right in your cell, um, and then, um, but it's also dreaming, which is a twelfth house activity. We do that, and then you know, um, the, those those are both bed pleasures. And so, I suppose the addition of um, the physical bed pleasures is not out of line. See, I thought yeah. part of the reason for the twelfth it probably isn't, but that's the sign that arises that rose an hour or two before you were born. And so in Rhetorius, he calls that the place in between worlds and that it indicates circumstances just prior to birth, because that's literally like the sign that was at the rising sign before your actual rising sign when you're born, while your mother is is in labor, theoretically. So then more broadly, I thought maybe symbolically you could extend that to which to that which happened to happen prior to your birth or that which led to your birth. So, you know, one of those things being your parents getting together. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't think that's actually the rationale the Vedic astrologers are using, but it was one of the ways I tried to rationalize that myself of how using that schema of the, the angular triads, you might be able to rationalize the, the Vedic 12th house assignment in a Western context. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, also, Kate in the comments adds, you know, 12th house, things you do in private. Right. right. The 12th yeah. house is, is private and secretive. Yeah. I often think of the 12th house, weirdly, I use this phrase in a consult this week. Oh, yeah, the 12th house is the boudoir. Um, and there was some 12th house activation and there was increased, um, you know, romantic or bedroom pleasure activity for this particular client. So I, I can see where the Vedic sort of comes from. I, I think I, a lot of, I echo a lot of what Austin said, um, you know, coming in from modern to traditional astrology, always being puzzled about why my tax bill and my sex life were in the same house. Um, I just, unless I was writing it off and I'd paid for it or something, who knows? Um, but I just couldn't, you know, it was one of those things that when I tried to teach it with students, cause my first teaching was in modern astrology, I didn't have a good reason for it. And then when I learned, of course, about the joys of the houses and, you know, the lower houses, um, being more to do with the body and Venus being in her joy in the fifth house. Um, that I could, I felt like that made much more sense. And also because children are begotten from sex. And when I do fertility work with clients, it's a, a lot about the fifth house. So I would definitely go fifth house first. Um, the, so the eighth house, it's like, I don't have similar to Austin. I don't have to, you know, get on a soapbox about why it shouldn't be there. Um, I'm okay with it. I just, when I tend to work with clients, I'll go for the fifth. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, I would, Never ignore the fifth if 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 the topic was sex. Whereas I might sometimes ignore the eighth if I had to pick one fifth. All yeah, day. yeah, that's I mean, a really it, good way of putting it. So I think we agree that at least 
even if it has something to do with sex, that it's probably overemphasized or overplayed in the modern tradition at the very least, right? Yeah, I, I, I think I, I think that's the perfect way to put it. Yeah, because I can see like, you know, it, there's a lot of other intimacies that happen in the eighth house where, you know, you deal with finances with a partner, which is a huge thing. Um, the other thing that I've come to appreciate about the eighth house through my understanding of traditional astrology is how it is connected to some of those fears and paranoias, like the sources of stress. Um, and this is, you know, some of the, the older material speaks to sort of these um, almost like mental health issues without being necessarily that explicit, like, you know, anxiety and stress. And I think to the extent that many of us maybe have hangups about our bodies or about sexual connection, I could see that crossover there too. Okay. Yeah. All right. And well, that, that's a yeah. bit of a digression, but thanks for <laughs> totally, yeah. <laughs> like 75 minutes into this and I just bring up this huge topic. Um, so Totally. And we'll just give you our, our Reader's Digest versions. Um, yeah. 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 Well, I appreciate it. So let's return back to the forecast really quick. One of the things I need to mention before I completely oh, space yeah. it out election. is the ele- election for this month. So uh, as usual, Lisa Scheim spent a fair, fair bit of time working on looking through electional charts for June and trying to find the most auspicious charts that she could find using the basic principles of electional astrology. And she came up with four or five charts, uh, and I'm going to share uh, one of them right now, the the most auspicious one that Lisa was able to find. So we had a little bit of an issues and there was no like amazing, amazing charts that were just completely clear from major downsides this month. But the one that we did come up with that looks pretty good is on June 11th, 2018 at about 7.30 in the morning with about, let's say about 16 degrees of Cancer rising. So the main thing um, with this chart, it has some major positives and some major drawbacks, but the main thing that uh, Lisa was focused on in this chart is um, making Cancer rising so that the moon is the ruler of the ascendant and therefore it's the most important planet in the chart. It's the chart that primarily represents whatever you're initiating at that time with your election. And the moon is exalted in Taurus in the 11th whole sign house, and it's actually applying to eventually a sextile with Venus, uh, which is the ruler of the 11th house. Uh, and Venus is in Cancer in the first house at 27 degrees of Cancer. So there's actually a mutual reception between the Moon and Venus, with the Moon ruling the 11th house and, or the Moon ruling the first house and Venus ruling the 11th house. So it's a very strong uh, 11th house type electional chart, which would be good for 11th house matters pertaining to friends, groups, alliances, or um, the other traditional category of the 11th, which is hopes which is basically things that you want to or you wish to achieve in the future, but that will take some time or some buildup before they fully manifest. So this is a chart that's very much focused on the 11th house, and therefore it would be good for for that reason. So the only major drawback, the only thing I don't really I mean, like about it is it does have Saturn in the 7th. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I think there was a weird delay with my internet. It's beautiful to have that exalted uh, moon ruling the ascendant in aspect to it. I just think that's a lovely thing. Yeah, we really wanted to find some way to to grab that. It's like Venus is almost out of cancer, but you can catch it right at the very end there at 27 and being able to get not just an exalted moon, but one where there's a mutual reception with, you know, because the 
exaltation of the moon happens once a month whenever the moon moves through Taurus, but this one is extra unique because Venus is going through Cancer and therefore they're exchanging signs. So the exaltation is is improved even more through the mm-hmm. support from Venus's domicile lord. Very so easy. the only only downside that I don't like is that Mar that Mars in Aquarius now is in a superior square where it's overcoming the moon in Taurus by sign. So it's still acceptable because it's not by degree and it is separating from the exact degree based square, but it's still introducing a little bit of little bit of problems into the mixture in terms of the moon's placement. Um, but it is mitigated somewhat, or some of the edges taken off of Mars by having Jupiter in Scorpio, which is itself overcoming Mars through a superior square as well. So um, yeah, this would be a good 11th house election. We weren't able to take advantage. Like I said, I think one of the elections Lisa does that we're going to present in the auspicious elections episode for patrons, which we're going to record later today, one of the elections does take advantage of that Mercury in Gemini, in its own sign this month, but we had a hard time finding really good ones because of that square with Neptune that we talked about earlier. So we weren't able to get any super amazing Mercury elections this month as a result of that, and instead decided to focus our main recommendation on that mutual reception between the Moon and Venus. So yeah, so that's the electional chart for the month. Um, for if anybody wants to see the the rest of the electional charts we found this month, we're going to present them. In this month's episode of the Auspicious Elections podcast with Lisa Scheim, which will be releasing to patrons on the five and ten dollar tier, uh, I think later today. So if you want to sign up for that, just sign up for our page on Patreon, and you'll get access as soon as it's released. All right, so that's it for the election. Um, as I think we're like seventy five minutes into this, so as we start to wind down, what are some well, of the other major? It's, conf- it's time for Mars. Yeah. It's time for Mars. So we've we've alluded, we've mentioned to, we've jumped ahead several times. Now it's time to talk about the the elephant in the room, which is the the Mars retrograde that happens towards the end of the month, where it stations at nine degrees of Aquarius. So uh, one timing note is that basically right around um, within a day or two of that ingress, we also have a full moon in Capricorn conjunct Saturn. So, you know, between Mars stationing and a full moon conjunct Saturn and Capricorn, uh, the last week of the month is rough. And it's an introduction to what will be a series of rough lunations over the third quarter and as well as Mars being retrograde for a lot of the third quarter. So it's, uh, you know, it's a... it's not a it's not a teaser. It's the actual beginning of a sequence. Okay. You know, it's it's the 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 show is starting. It's not like a teaser trailer. It's not a preview. It's like here we go. Sure. So there it is. There's the I'm displaying it for the people watching the video now. So it's June twenty seventh uh, here in Denver. It's really late. It goes exactly really late at night at like eleven p.m. where the moon exactly opposes the sun. Uh, the the moon is at six degrees and twenty eight minutes of Capricorn, and it's opposing the sun at six degrees and twenty eight minutes of Cancer, and the moon is conjoined. It's separating from a conjunction with Saturn at five degrees of Capricorn. So yeah, that's a pretty heavy full moon exactly conjunct Saturn in Capricorn. So this is actually like the first full moon with Saturn in Capricorn that we've had since that ingress took place in December, right? Yeah, the first full moon in Capricorn. Yes, since right then. Right. Okay. So yeah, that's pretty heavy. And that does 
sort of kick off a whole, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, summer of pretty serious lunations, as you said. Yeah. Yep. So, and of course, Saturn is the ruler of Aquarius. So Mars and Aquarius is going to be, you know, vibing off of Saturn. And so that Saturn is emphasized. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like a day and a half after Mars's station. Mm, okay. Well, and and that's also interesting because if if this if Saturn is at five degrees of Capricorn and it's opposing the Sun, then that means it's like precisely at the midpoint, basically of its retrograde cycle. It's halfway between those stations, since whenever Saturn is opposing the Sun, it's always going to be retrograde. And uh, yeah, the station points that makes it like the halfway point through the stations. Yeah, and um, that's a great point. And whenever you have that, um, it means that 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 planet is also uh, at its nearest point to the Earth. So that's Saturn near and bright, right? That last week is as bright and as close as Saturn's going to get all year. And that's interesting because the same thing is true with Mars. And so we're moving into you know this summer slash Q three. Um, is Mars's brightest, closest point in its two-year cycle. So, you know, bright, close, retrograde malefics. Right. Look at that. We're, we're actually going to be able to see all of these. because So this is set Great for like- Great sky viewing. Great sky viewing. Yeah. Right, right here at the end of June, you're going to see some amazing like observational astronomy because this is- So this chart right now that I have set, it's set for about 11 p.m. in Denver- so basically just after sunset, once it gets dark enough that the stars start coming out, it's still going to be bright because it's going to be a full moon. So that's going to be obscuring some stars, but you should still be able to see a bunch of planets at that time. Like at this time, we have Mars is going to be this little red star that's rising over the eastern horizon. Venus is over in Leo, and it's going to be a bright white star that's like setting over the western horizon. Then you're going to have Saturn like right next to the moon within a degree. That, that'll probably be visible, right? I mean, Saturn will be kind of dim. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's oh, actually yeah. one of the best times to try and catch Saturn is when the moon is near it. Okay. And then finally, you'll have Jupiter, which will also be visible up there in Scorpio in the 10th whole sign house uh, right at the top of the ecliptic. So you, you can basically see every planet. Uh, except for, well, Mercury is actually far enough yep. away from the sun at that point that you'll see Mercury shortly after sunset as well. Yeah, it's 22 degrees. That's getting close to maximum to elongation for yeah. Mercury. So okay, yeah, so this the, is a, the show. This is a unique situation then where you can literally see every visible planet just after sunrise or just after sunset. So yeah. I don't, I don't think that's, that's normal. Um, it's not. So it's beautiful. Definitely get out and look at the sky. Brilliant. Look, look okay. up. Remember right. that's so, the charts. Yeah. So, so Kelly, what do you think about that uh that Mars retrograde conjunct the south node in Aquarius? So yeah, um well, I don't have a lot of I, I I'm not spinning this one in any positive way. This is it doesn't feel great. It feels volatile. And I think what we're getting set up for in June is really building into the lunar eclipse at the end of July when it's sort of like everything comes to a head. Um, and we'll talk more about that next month. But Mars on the South Node retrograde, old toxic stuff, old anger stuff. Um, I mean, from the Vedic tradition, the South Node has this spiritualizing perspective. So it may be that idea of being able to somehow transform or shift some of the gunk 
But I do think we are going to see some challenging expressions of Mars energy. We're going to have some anger that sort of, you know, from a personal level, like something just comes up from inside you and it's maybe triggered by some really old stuff. And I think we're going to see a bit of um, sort of lashing and like a spraying, if you like, of of um, some of the negativity. And it's that whole last week of June with the Mars stopping and the moon, the full moon conjunct Saturn. I mean, this the feeling I have for these few days is just like running into a brick wall having to stop or having to slow down. Like, you know, there's a big sign that says you cannot pass here right now. Um, and so definitely this feeling of frustration. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I would add, so the South Node or Ketu um, in the Vedic material that I've studied um, not only has a spiritualizing effect, but it has um, it has its own fire or Agni, um, and so Mars and the South Node actually um, double up each other's heat Very in many ways. Yeah, Ketu is like the um, like the 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 fire of of purification or a trash fire. You know, it's the it's the burning up or like the heat in a sweat lodge which purifies you. Um, but it has its own intemperate heat, and so Mars, of course, has intemperate heat, and so there's a doubling up of the of the heat with south node and mars um i actually i remember many years ago um there was a mars south node conjunction in the news um a bunch of people died in a sweat lodge because they yes! turned it up too hot i remember but, this and so in a in a natal chart the south node mars is thought to form a combination where there's um the danger of excessive rage uh, or heat, because mm. um, it again, it's a doubling up, and the south node is not, you know, happy with things generally. It wants no, it's, things it's to... angry and hungry. Yeah, and so one of the things that, um, uh, or I would say more disgusted than, okay. than hungry. Okay. Um, um, and so it's one thing. One of the things as, as I was thinking about this, that both Mars's retro or that Mars's retrograde phase, the sign of Aquarius. And the South Node all have in common is um, reject, or excuse me, rejecting and going away. You know, Sat Aquarius is the the sign of Saturn, which is about being on the outside, right? Being forced into exile. The South Node is about withdrawing from attachments, or rejecting things. And then Mar Mars is when it's retrograde, often has this. Uh, sort of uh, screw you guys. I'm going home. This it's very non-participatory. Doesn't want to be part of um, you know whatever you know whatever everybody's dumb story is. And so there's a lot of like wanting. I think there are going to be especially with its configuration with Uranus. I think a lot of people are going to be like, mm, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm done. I'm leaving. Whether that's a relationship or a job. Uh, or I don't know, participation in social media, but just this like, no, I'm out of here. Just not doing this anymore. And there's that, you know, that, there's that kind of, how should we say, purification or burning away that only happens when you've got isolation. You know, you have to uh, remove contact with a situation to process it and excrete it. Great words there, Austin. <laughs> <laughs> but it do, it does have this signature, doesn't it, of endings, of letting go. I liked how you tied the Aquarius and the Saturn um, themes with the Mars and the South Node around the isolation or standing 
outside the crowd, like being the odd duck out or the black sheep and either removing yourself or being removed. And there's some sort of, I don't know, purification. You you get to be um, relieved from a burden as a result of that. Yeah, there's um yeah, and just looking at the kind of outsideriness, mm. also uh the South Node as um uh as a cast or role in society, um is is uh, people who are outside the 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 class system, like not merchants and not kings or whatever, but South the nodes are like outsiders, right? Totally. And so I you know, one of the sort of simple word salad things we can get out of this is like the anger of the exile, the anger of the rejected, the anger perhaps of the refugee, but like the outsider's anger rising up, right? Well, and this is interesting because then when we think about those themes in the context or compared to the full moon in Capricorn conjunct Saturn, which to my mind is very much about people who are the, the within, they're the conformists or people who have measured up or you know, it's almost like the opposite side of Saturn, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's the way I think of it. I, the, if Saturn is a wall, Capricorn is what's inside the wall. And yes. Aquarius is what's outside the wall. Yeah. And because both of these Saturnian themes are activated within just a couple of days at the end of the month. And it, it's interesting about how we'll each relate to that idea of the wall or the defining, you know, things about what is allowed and accepted or what is permissible and then what is not and how that creates some outsider type energy. And it's just really interesting to be so distinctly different with these themes in such a short space of time. Yeah, 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 it is. Well, and the fact that Mars will eventually come back to Capricorn at the end of the retrograde. Yes. So it's really, It's really straddling that wall. Well, and I like to the idea of the South Node influence there with the purification and the, the intense extreme heat. Because this June, where we have the first Mars South Node, this is only the first of three that we're going to get. Um, and so whether the purification happens this month or whether it begins a process which continues over the next few months until we get that last Mars South, Mars South Node, which I think is in September. That might be worth reflecting on in terms of a constructive approach to this. Because I remember at the beginning, Austin, you were talking about feeling like greater um, sense of frustration or, or anger or yes. other things already as a result of that transit. And it reminded me sometimes of what Mars transits are like when they're hitting like a personal spot in your chart. And sometimes that just that literal or that gut level feeling of sometimes of, of having more fire or more heat and and the subsequent feelings that come along with that in terms of tendency to express things like frustration or anger in a way that's more readily available or or where your trigger is a little bit uh sh your fuse is a little bit shorter than it might be otherwise and something to pay attention to so that you know if this is something that comes from within in terms of that mars transit hitting your chart in a personal way that you don't create problems in your own life by you know um saying something or doing something impulsive that you might not under different circumstances if you're in a different frame of mind yeah absolutely well and you know, uh, on re uh, reflecting on the the metaphor and phenomenon of heat, right? Yeah. If people talk about, you know, reaching their boiling point, and so you know, Mars um, Mars speaks to the power of fire to transform matter, 
right? That it is fire that allows the blacksmith to shape the iron, right? Um, and of course, it's fire which allows us to reshape our lives. Now, um, what's interesting is, you know, when you actually look at objects exposed to heat, is that there's generally not a gradual change. Um, like water doesn't grad doesn't um, evaporate at a steadily higher rate as you add as you add fire. Um, there's a boiling point. There's like literally one temperature point where if you go one if you just go that one degree more, suddenly the the water is becoming um, steam like very rapidly. Whereas two degrees under that, it's not doing that, right? And so even though the the buildup is gradual, there's that flash point. And there's this, it's the same thing with ignition. People talk about a fuse. Mm. You know, you ever try to light a candle, it either catches, the wick either catches or it doesn't, right? You, you can't have half fire, right? The things can't be half on fire. They're either, they're, the, the ignition has happened or it hasn't. And so, you know, Chris, what you're saying is, you know, like, don't, don't blow up. Don't ignite uh, on people that you uh, <laughs> would like to continue having relationships to. Um, but, you know, you can, uh, excuse me, with some level of self-awareness, you can see what the fire is, what the issue is, what's, you know, what is what is bringing you closer to that boiling point and perhaps address that, um, you know, ahead of time. I feel like for this one, um, making space. Um, like, you know, instead of quitting your job immediately, um, taking some, taking your vacation time, giving, like letting your, letting yourself occupy a space where you can kind of work through some of this stuff, um, is, uh, going to be really helpful, uh, making space ahead of time rather than blowing up to clear space. Yeah. That's so funny. Cause that's the last thing though. You will want to do when you're in that mindset at the, in the moment. Maybe, maybe, um, there's also the like, oh, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. And so instead of like just keep, you know, doing that thing over and over again until you blow up, um, be like, you know what? This is really a situation that I need some distance from. Um, maybe even if it's inconvenient, you know, it doesn't make sense with your plans or how you budgeted your vacation time or whatever. Be like, I'm going to take a few days off. Early intervention will be critical to stave off some of the more dramatic manifestations of this, I think. Um, And the one thing too, you just the way you describe that, Austin, with the fire helped me clarify something. Because I always think with with really hot energies, like configurations like this Mars South Node, for instance, it often how you respond or how you get stirred, it often depends on how much heat you have internally anyway. So if you're quite a combustible person by nature, if that's your personality and maybe you see it in your chart because there's a lot of fire or there's a lot of Mars, there's a lot of sun, then this is just like pouring fuel on the already hot um, innards of you. But if you're more of a cool type where you have more wetness or more earth or more Saturn, types like that can actually, they sometimes need this excess of heat to actually stir or prod them into action. I'm not necessarily saying it will be smoother for those people, but from a holistic or a balancing perspective of the qualities, it's that idea of are you pouring fuel on an already hot going fire or are we pouring fuel on something that needs a bit of extra boost to get going? Yeah, right. Like it's uh, if we're going to turn the thermostat up 15 degrees, 
is your are we going from 60 to 75 or are we going from 100 to 115 yeah right? yeah exactly so that's a few thoughts from both of us but chris do you have more on this that you want to share or no not necessarily on this i did have something recently where i thought was interesting that austin some of your statements made me think of about the quickness of mars because especially in like traditional text you have a difference between Saturn sometimes being like a long, long-term difficulties type thing, whereas Mars is often like short one-time events if it's going to be like, let's say, a negative event. Um, and I had one thing come up recently looking at a chart of somebody that had a gambling problem, like a gambling addiction issue, and he had like Mars in a day chart in the second house, and that seemed to be like one of the main culprits, which is a really interesting placement um, in terms of thinking about that, because it was indicating like, you know, negative or challenging financial matters uh, pertaining to his second house, but it was of this impulsive nature where he would like impulsively put down lots of money on sports betting. Um, and it was always this like impetuousness or this impulsiveness that got him into trouble. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting metaphor in some ways for Mars or the different ways that Mars's impulsiveness or impetuousness or fieriness, as, as we're describing it here, can sometimes play out depending on what part of the chart it's located in. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously for everybody, Mars is going to be stationing retrograde in a different house and in a different part of the chart. For some people, it's going to be more notable than others, depending on if it's like activated as a time lord through something like perfections, or if it's actually aspecting a, a sensitive point in your chart closely, especially if you have something around nine degrees of the fixed signs. But you know, it might be interesting for each person to think about what house Mars is stationing retrograde in and what the core significations are of that house and what that sense of like fieriness or impetuousness or, or sort of suddenness could import into the life if you were to try to come up with a, a delineation of that archetype for Mars being imported into that specific sphere of your life as rep represented by that house. Uh, and that should give most people you know, something to work with in terms of understanding what that transit's going to be about uh, in your life when it comes up here towards the end of June. Yeah, that's nice. Um, uh, just a few more things. Um, when Mars is retrograde, there's generally um, a lack of control and a lack of desire to control Mars, right? It's, you know, because we're always, Mars is always um, a subject of control. People are like, you know, control your temper, don't act out, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Don't say mean things to people. Don't express your hostile feelings. And so we're always like kind of clamping down on Mars. And the Mars retrograde periods, um, you can see in people, both people's personal history as well as in you know, the history of history books are periods where the Marshall um, sort of breaks the chain, um, you know, and, and, and like a dog, you know, um, breaking its chain and run all, running wild in the woods for a while. And so, um, you know, and that's – and so externally we will – you know, we encounter people who are uh, off the – you know, uh, off the leash, right? Mm. Um, and then we also generally yearn for – you know, I want to do what I want to do um, in the area where Mars retrograde is. We're, you know, we're tired of being so careful and controlled in that area, and I think that that is additionally 
um, that 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 particular signification is strongly supported by the square the the ongoing square to Uranus. You know, um, Mars is square Uranus in mid May. Mars doesn't you know get even ten degrees away from that square with Uranus. Um, you know, uh, uh, all you know almost all summer. Like the Mars Uranus thing is ongoing, and that um, you know that like oh I'm so tired of trying to control this. I'm so tired of doing what I'm supposed to. I'm so tired of whatever is a real thing. Because um, Mars, you know, socially Mars favors, Mars likes independence, right? Mars is not um, is not a married planet. Mars is a single planet. Um, and w w there's one thing from um, uh, Geotish class that uh, that's come up over the last couple of weeks that I really like is um, in the Parashara, Parashara says that a planet is um, three times more desirous or hungry when it's retrograde. It wants to do whatever it, you know, wants to, do, Mars wants to Mars three times as much when it's retrograde. That's different than being capable, mm -hmm. but there's, but the, the desire is increased threefold. I thought that was a really interesting angle. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that's um, cool. And, and in terms of the threefold, that's worth mentioning again, just because Mars will, of course, make that square with Uranus three times. And one of the things worth mentioning is to whatever extent, you know, if somebody does have some major event or turning point in their life that coincides with the Mars retrograde at the end of June, um, it may set off a sequence of events that aren't fully wrapped up until Mars returns back to that degree later this year. And it looks like it's not until around October 9th or October 10th that Mars returns finally back to nine degrees of Aquarius, which is the degree that it stations retrograde at in June. Right. Just in time for the Venus retrograde. Yeah. Yeah. Just in time for Venus retrograde in Scorpio. And there's like a nice little new moon in Libra right about that time as well. So, you know, this is something I'm sure once we do our October forecast, we'll be returning to and noticing some interesting correlations in terms of events being brought to completion or sometimes just revisited and reviewed in some way later in the year, which took place or were centered around this initial station back in late June. Um, but it's maybe worth noting that because sometimes paying attention to the long-term sequence of some of these transits can help you to get better perspective on them, especially after the fact, you know, in retrospect. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just uh, while you were talking and this Mars stuff is bouncing around in my head, I think one of the storylines that will be available and that some people will play out during this Mars retrograde is going to be um, uh, Braveheart, Mel Gibson and Braveheart running around with a claymore screaming freedom and leading an ultimately failed revolution. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I would so be on the watch out for um, people with big swords screaming freedom. Yeah. Don't, don't cross them and – don't join the, their revolution. Yeah, let them, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> let them tire themselves out. Sure. All right. Well, I think that might be a good note to wrap up on as we're wrapping up what became the Mars retrograde uh, episode of the year. Um, do you guys have any final words as we, we wind down here at the end of the, the month? Oh, we're pretending it's the end of the month. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're pretending that it's not like mid-May right now and we're all about to- have okay. the more the more important events that are happening this month take place because I'm releasing this after the fact at the end of the month. Yeah, I uh, just uh, one more thought on Mars. You know, um you if you just 
keep an eye on it. You should be able to see it coming. Um, a lot of it you should be able to see coming a couple weeks out from the station. You don't. The station is not the time to start paying attention. Yeah. And I think the only thing that occurs to me as a sort of a summary is we take a big step back now. I think, Chris, you and I had said at the start of the show that June is a bit of a recovery month for us um, because, you know, we've, we've both got a lot of stuff happening in May and it's just sort of going to be a chance to catch our breath, which speaks to me of what Austin, you were talking about with some of the isolation themes to do with the Mars signatures in June. And it's interesting to me that I'm actually looking forward to that as a chance to kind of just collect myself. And I wonder if that's something others could open themselves to as that if if the months does seem a little bit quieter, take that as an opportunity just to slow down and check in, given there's so much going on in the sky. Yeah. And speaking of going on in the sky, that's the final thing I want to leave people with is just pay attention to the observational astronomy this month, because that lineup of being able to see all of the visible planets in the night sky, especially later in the month around the time of the full moon, is pretty spectacular. And I think, especially if any of you are undergoing heavy transits this month, or if any of these key things like the Uranus ingress into Taurus, or the Mars station in Aquarius, um, or the full moon happening next to Saturn, if any of that stuff is hitting your transit, your, your natal chart in a notable way, and you start going through major events in your life, um, it might be worth you know just taking a moment to look at the sky at night and reflect on some of the positions of the planets, because I think that that also sometimes is helpful just in terms of putting things in perspective of how astrology works and what you're what we're actually looking with and connecting these abstract, you know, two-dimensional diagrams that we're always looking at with charts with what the actual astronomical placements are um, and getting a developing a better understanding or a deeper understanding of astrology as a result of that. So so pay attention to the night sky this month. I think that would be my main piece of advice. Yeah, that's awesome. Don't forget to look up. Don't forget to look up. All right. Well that should be our our tagline for the forecast episodes, I think from now on. Um but yeah, all right. Well, I'm. I think that's it for this episode for this month. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you guys uh, next week, and we're going to see, I'm sure, like hundreds of listeners next week. Um, so it should be a lot of fun, and uh, hopefully, we can do some sort of recap after things are over, just to talk about how how UAC went. Yeah, that's gonna be. It's gonna be awesome, and uh, I look forward to reflecting on it with y'all. That'll be fantastic. It'll be like six weeks from now, but it'll be good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it will. Yeah, well, in Austin, I want to. Hopefully, we can once your if your book is out next week, we're we're totally doing an episode talking about your book here pretty soon. Oh, totally. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah, that yeah. would be. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. Um, last I heard from the publisher, it should be at UAC. You know, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed until I have it in my hand. All right. Awesome. Well, cool. I think that's it then. Um, so yeah, thanks everyone for, we had a, a great audience today of patrons who joined us live. So thanks everyone who joined us for the live episode. Yeah. Some uh, really as, good comments. Yeah. Some really good comments this month. Sorry. We didn't get to all of them. There was a lot and I wasn't able to keep track. Um, thanks to all of our patrons who support the astrology podcast each month. It makes a huge difference in being able to consistently do these episodes each month, which would otherwise probably not be possible. Um, yeah, thank you guys, Austin and Kelly, for joining me for these episodes every month. And I'm looking forward to doing our live episode for the first time next week. And uh, yeah, thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.